0: Hey folks, welcome to episode 165 of the Becoming Human podcast. It is rainy, as can be here in the Pacific Northwest, and the birds are out singing and picking the worms from the grass. They are loving it, and I am too. I can't even see the sky. There's so much mystery up above. How do you view businesses, companies, and the people who run them? There are countless reasons why a person or a group tries to produce a service or product. Why do you write a novel? Why paint a picture? What's the general reason you would make sunscreen? Are you trying to make sunscreen because you see that other people have been successful in the market, so you, you what you're imagining is success and you believe making sunscreen will make you successful? What does that mean about the product and how it connects with the people or the thing that you're trying to provide? What are you imagining is the effect of what you've cost? Do you pursue it for a nebulous term such as success? How about fame or fortune? Do you feel, do you understand to yourself what you like? What you enjoy? What you're lacking? Have you considered how you can meet those needs and solve those problems based on your perspective? Can you bring your perspective to the table, look within, and bring it to the outside? Do you pers- when we're creating things solely to be wealthy, known, or rewarded, we're driven to a race to the bottom economy. When you're creating something to express yourself, to solve a problem you want to and believe you can solve, to produce something you want that isn't available, you're enriching our lives. When you make a shoe that isn't available with certain features, write a song that connects with you like no other, start a teaching program that you wish you had growing up, you create something you value and you believe will help others. If you fail, it's information that you can improve or let go of the thing you're growing. Not because of the promise of reward, but because of how the work you're doing affects the world or the community. Stephen Saushin and Lena Phoenix are doing just that. They aren't trying to find a way to make shoes um, to be profitable in the shoe industry because it's a good way to make money. They had a, a real problem, and Stephen got into read, was given Christopher uh, McDougall's book "Born to Run" after experiencing a variety of injuries when getting into sprinting in his forties, and um, he tried out. Barefoot running, and he loved it so much. So he got into making his own barefoot sandals. Got several compliments. People even asking if they can have sandals themselves, and it evolved from there. In this episode, I talked to Steven Saushin about being an entrepreneur, CEO of Zero Shoes, running and running a company with his wife Lena, his lifestyle, and more. You can find out more about their shoes at zeroshoes.com and check out his podcast, join the movement movement. Without any further ado, here is Stephen. <laughs> Gotta say, I love your guys' shoes. I mean, you know, I got into the whole barefoot running thing and um I was running with ultras for a while and I kinda wanted to to test my feet a little more, you know, explore a little bit. And I came into your guys' shoes and I gotta say it's been one of my favorite things so far. You know, being able to push those miles and add intensity to my feet, it's nice.
1: Well, it's one of my favorite things to hear stories like that. And happily, that's what we hear all day, every day. My my wife says it best. She goes, you know, there's enough shoe companies in the world. There's no reason to start another unless what you're doing changes people's lives. And happily, for the last 12 years, you know, that's what people keep telling us uh, we've done. Not by doing anything special, but by getting out of their way so your body can just do what's natural.
0: And And I love that. Um, that point of view as an entrepreneur, right? to be able to remove barriers so people can access more of their life as opposed to, you know, adding more um, to people's lives. Yeah, well, even better.
1: Um, It's great when you're a business person or marketing person and you can do something crazy like tell the truth Mm -hmm. and uh, without having to embellish it really. Now, granted, we're up against 50 years of propaganda and mythology and frankly, you know, bullshit uh, that was given to us by big shoe companies who did the opposite, who keep coming up with, you know, new technology that has never been proven to work. But when you have the advantage of being able to just say here's the truth um it's like having a superpower especially in conversations with some of those competitors where they're trying to claim you know magic whatever what is something and i just say to them so where's the proof for that you know being better in any way
0: that's interesting i think that calls something fundamental to being an entrepreneur um is this the first kind of uh is this your first entrepreneurial, you know, endeavor? Is this my company? Is, is this
1: my first rodeo? Yeah. No, I've never had a job. Um, I've never had a resume. I've never interviewed for a job. I'm tempted to go interview for a job just to see what it's like, um, and see how much fun I can have. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I no, I started a software company way back then. I was teaching internet marketing. I had a meditation course that I developed that I was selling online uh, prior to zero shoes. In fact, we were just about to really start promoting that when two things happened one the idea for zero shoes came up but the other is it became very clear to me that um uh, dealing with human psychology is not inherently fun because people do things with their well basically if you can help people dramatically transform some internal experience um one of two things happen that are not fun for me one is they start doing a lot of you know like bowing down and thinking you're magic and special which is annoying Mm -hmm. And the other is that there are a number of people who are really committed their identity is about being broken and if you can show them that that's not a useful or valid position to take um, they will often try to drag you down and prove that you're wrong and no seriously they're forever broken and mm-hmm. i'm not messianic um, although my my excitement for about you know natural movement might uh, belie that, but I uh, I just didn't want to have to deal with people who who were bringing more to the table than what I was offering, which was just you know this very simple set of techniques for having radically interesting experiences.
0: As as an entrepreneur, you seem to be um, to be drawn to not just finding a way to be profitable, but finding a way to genuinely help people. Would that be fair?
1: Well, yes, but for a different reason than what that question seems to suggest. What it really is, is that I um, I'm very aware this is going to sound really crazy. So one of my one of the things I did for a living for quite a long time, I was a stand up comic and comics um, as a group. What makes us able to do what we do is that we're very aware of the things that annoy us. (laughs) And then we say funny things about that. So as an entrepreneur, it's the same thing. I've always been aware of like what's getting in the way. Of something that I want to do. And then I think of some solution for that. And I know that if I'm having this problem, other people are as well. And so um, it helps people. And that's an important thing. A friend of mine, who's a multi multi millionaire once said becoming a millionaire is easy, just find a way to help people and charge them a little money for it. And so there is that component. But the bigger thing is that it evolved out of my own frustrations, my own exploration of how to solve certain problems. And then other people kind of came along for the ride.
0: Is that um, standard protocol as an entrepreneur in your peer group?
1: I'm sure not. Um, I don't know because I don't care what other people do. (laughs) So, I mean, I'm not going to whatever. You know, I don't know that there's not a technique. If there were a technique, everybody would do it and it would stop working anyway. Mm -hmm. So all I know for my situation is that's how it's evolved. And I know other people do it other ways. I can think of innumerable other ways of doing it, but they're not useful for me.
0: Mm-hmm. And how did you find your process?
1: Um, uh, maturity, uh, or well, let's not call it maturity. Let's call it getting older. It's, it's not something that I ever, it's not codified. It's not something that I think about per se. It's literally just that I've had a number of opportunities. I'm 59 years old. I've had a number of opportunities since I was a kid to, um, pursue. It never occurred to me not to just do something I found interesting. And it turned out that I was able to make a living
0: doing that for my whole life. And have you ever had difficulty taking what you found interesting and being able to relate that to a general audience? No.
1: <laughs> I mean, simply, and it depends on how you define general. I mean, I invented a piece of software for a select niche of human beings, AKA film and television writers, you know, so it's not general audience. It's a very specific audience, but there's enough of them that I made quite a fine living for myself and about a hundred other people. Um, and, uh, I mean, I did okay. They did better than I did actually, but suffice it to say, no, I seem to, um, I think for any of us, if we think about the things that on a daily basis annoy us, there's going to be enough other people who are just like us that it's a, it's certainly worth exploring. I'm not suggesting that's a guaranteed way to create a career or make a living, but it's certainly an, an avenue to pursue. And you just have to be a little careful about whether, I guess, whether there are, in fact, enough people who need a solution. And if you, what your solution is matches what they can do, want to do, are looking for, are able to do, as in, you know, can they afford it, for example? Can they access it? Um, how applicable is it really? So you do need to generalize a little bit to make sure that it actually works. In fact, this is my number one entrepreneurial advice, because I don't give advice because it's all stupid, um, mm-hmm. because everyone's gonna do their own little thing. But the advice that I give is, as quickly and inexpensively as possible, find out if strangers are willing to pay you for what you've discovered.
0: Uh-huh. And is there been an example where um, you've had to implement this in a creative way?
1: Well, like with zero shoes, that's just how it began. It was a goofy little hobby making do a do it yourself sandal um, from basically a 10,000 year old design idea. And I was just making shoes for people just for the fun of it. Um, I, you know, I made just enough money so that every time I bought some materials, the next time I could buy twice as much, because it was just not a job. It was just, you know, goofing around. And then that evolved into, you know, what's now a whole different world. Um, So there's that. And then because uh, that was the that was the easiest way. The flip side is my software company. I mean, I did basically sync everything I had into it uh, to get it launched. So that was the exact opposite. But I just knew that what I had come up with was better than anything that had existed before, and just you know dove in.
0: So that's a feeling that you had. That
1: um, no, no, it wasn't a feeling. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was not a feeling at all. It was a very so oh boy. How to describe this without getting too in the weeds? Um, one of the things that I did when I came up with this idea. I went to a trade show where all of my soon to be competitors were and I did a little social engineering. I was kind of curious if they were possibly thinking in the direction that I was because they were all doing the same basic thing and what I was doing was radically different. And I what I did, the social engineering was when I went to their booth at this trade show, I looked for the guy who wasn't talking to anybody else and I assumed that he was one of their programmers and I was right. And so I just said, "So, hey, what are you working on?" And from what they told me, Uh, It was very clear that they did not have the same idea that I did. And when I kind of tossed my idea at them gently to see if it landed anywhere, I could tell that they just didn't get what I was talking about. And I actually said to three competitors at that show, I said, you really should talk about working with me because otherwise you're going to be out of business in six months. And they said, "Um, yeah, you're ridiculous. And I said, I'm just I'm telling you now, I'm not trying to be obnoxious. I'm just giving you an opportunity to not go bankrupt. Um, and, you know, take it or leave it. And they said, well, we don't think you're right. I went, okay. And it's exactly what happened. So what I came up with was, again, it was just such a radical departure. Um, and I, um, I I don't know how to say, I, I knew that it was, um, here's how I could say it was more than a feeling. Mm-hmm. The software that existed at that time It's all designed for screenwriting. Screenplays have a very particular and arcane and ridiculous set of formatting rules. And the way all the existing software worked was either macros and key commands to try to get things to work, and then a post-processing step to make sure the script was in the right format, and a whole bunch of other things that just got in the way of your brain. And what I figured out, I have a background in cognitive psychology, and I figured out how to get rid of all of those extra keystrokes, all of those extra steps, all of the extra formatting, Everything happened in real time. What you see is what you get with fewer keystrokes than if you were using a typewriter in the most natural way possible. When I was teaching the program to people at first, they'd say, how do I use it? I go, just start typing and you'll figure it out. They go, what? I go, just start typing, watch the screen, and in three minutes you'll figure it out. And they did. People... Right, and people were literally when I was, when I first showed the program at this at the first trade show, the one where I'd put these guys out of business. People were literally using the software and crying because that the they were so used to all this extra mental effort that it took to do what they were trying to do that when they didn't have to use it, it was like an endorphin release that just wow. made them. Cry. It was wild to see. So. That was um, now I could argue some people or some people could argue that what I was describing is a feeling that I had a better option or is a thought that I had a better option. But it was more informed than just believing it. It was based on a lot of, you know, very um, specific data points.
0: And that's isn't that where you find like true and critical thinking or really scientific thinking is where you create like a hypothesis and you go out there and test that hypothesis before you completely, you know, commit and saying that this is, you know, this is real for instance, or I should research this further.
1: Yeah. I think that's a great way of framing it. And,
0: um, have you ever solved? have you ever solved the problem, uh, in your personal life or as an entrepreneur and it not work in the market? but you found it to be effective to use it personally?
1: Um, that's another interesting question. I don't know because the things that I've done, they tend to have a decent lifespan. So, you know, the software company was was a full-time kind of, you know, all-encompassing thing for 10, 12 years. I mean, it still exists, actually. We're relaunching, but that's a whole other story. Um, mm-hmm. You know, zero shoes were now coming up on year 12. Uh, in between, I had done some real estate investing that did very well. And then in 2006, my wife and I said, hey, the market's going to crash. And so we started selling all of that. Um, we just tell from a mile away. And um, so, no, because I've only really done... Very actively, um, the four major things and a bunch of the little things, and the little things all worked as well, just not to this extent.
0: Mm-hmm. It seems that you know it's um, success, I mean, in a lot of things is uh, like or- yeah, exactly luck and opportunity meeting, and you like, you know, you don't often get into something because it's going to be a hit. You
1: know, you get into it because no, you no, it, it's a crapshoot. Let, let, let me be clear. While the things that I've come up with had various degrees of I hate the word success, but I'll use it for lack of a better one. Um, what allowed them to be what allowed them to come up at all as show up in my brain at all and then to turn into businesses at all is 90 percent luck. I mean, you know, I'm going to start with zero shoes. The luckiest thing possible related to zero shoes is that some 20 years ago, the woman who is my wife decided to be my friend uh-huh. after years of ignoring me and then decided to, you know that it was okay to go out with me. first okay to be my friend, then okay to go out with me and then decided somehow to marry me. And were it not for Lena, this wouldn't be here because, I'm a good product marketing person. She's a brilliant operations finance person. And so this started together. we it not for the fact that we were married. There's no way this could have happened. There's no possible way I could have ever brought oh. anybody into this who could do what she did does or did um and you know be here for the long haul and then to get you know into one that's even more fun for the fun of it um our chief product officer is a guy that he was the former head of global product design for Crocs. he'd been designing footwear for 40 years when we met him uh-huh. and we met him because he was out walking his dog one day and or his dogs plural And normally his wife did that. And there were some other dogs that were getting walked by a friend of ours. And normally the wife, you know, did those dogs too. And so the dogs were hanging out. And so the, my friend and Dennis started talking and our friend said, what do you do? Dennis said, global product design at Crocs. Our friend said, Steven and Elena own a shoe company, which at that point could not be further from the truth. We had a do it yourself sandal making kit company. We sold <laughs> sheets of rubber string and instructions. Um, but anyway, Dennis said, you know, pass on my phone number. And I sat on it for months, because I'm thinking why would this guy want to talk to me? Uh, but then after a while, I called him. we got together for lunch, we had a great time. I said, someday, it'll be great to find someone like you to work with. But you know, 30 years earlier, who are just getting their feet wet, but they demonstrated they know what they can do. And he he's well, what about me? I said, Well, you were getting paid like 300 grand a year at your last job. And we have not even made 300 grand total since we started the company. So I don't see how that's possible. He goes, well, I'm, I'm retired. I said, Oh, then you're hired. That's incredible. um, Yeah. And, and literally, I mean, that's just one of, I I could count hundreds of stories just like that. So I like to say that success, 90% luck and the other 10%, is also luck and then there's a separate hundred percent where ninety percent is working your ass off and the other ten percent is hopefully knowing how to put out the fires that start overnight despite the fact that nothing changed since yesterday like for example on Friday we discovered that Facebook shut down all of our ad accounts whoa shut them down huge source of our Oh income. my gosh yeah shut down and when we finally found out why this morning three and a half oops. days later they said oops it was a mistake Oh, no, we hadn't even violated any terms of anything. That's... It was a mistake. <laughs> and so, you know, that's a crazy thing. Yeah. Or or we have our like our warehouse management software. They update the software right before we have a product launch and they break everything. You know, it's just so <laughs> every day is a process of finding out what broke and hopefully being smart enough to fix it as fast as possible.
0: What about that process do you like or engages you?
1: That's a good question. Um, I like uh, dealing with humans Mm -hmm. and I like being right. (laughs) (laughs) And I like um, I like developing product. And I like coming up doing all the creative components of advertising and marketing, you know, just writing and, um, ideating with people. Um, I, what I really, really like, what I'm really best at in many ways is editing, whether it's editing product ideas, marketing ideas, business ideas. What I really like is people come smart people come with ideas
0: and then we hack them out and make them even better. That's Mm -hmm. my favorite part. Um, there's I know people understand in the profession that there's like this team mentality when you're doing things and you're working together as a unit. Um, but what is that really like? How much does bringing someone from, you know, like another company like the Crocs that you were saying? Yeah. How much does that does that contribute to your goals and your product ideation as a team?
1: Um, 100% and 0% at the same time. So what I mean is, you know, many people have the idea that your job is to hire people to take on things that you're not good at or shouldn't be doing or don't have time for 100% true, but they have the idea that by doing that, it will give them more time to do other things. 100% not true. So the, the bigger things get, um, I I can imagine turning over all responsibility to certain kinds of people, but I can't imagine doing that at all because Mm -hmm. it's our company. You know, Mm -hmm. Lena and I were the ones who were five million dollars, who had guaranteed personally guaranteed five million dollars in debt for a while. You know, they don't—they don't have the same skin in the game. Yeah, matter no matter how much skin they have in the game. Mm -hmm. And so um, I I said, uh, being the kind of face of the company as the company gets bigger, the challenge is I still have my fingers in a lot of pie. Mm-hmm. And the more fingers I have in the pie, the more people can shove that pie in my face at some point, so <laughs> I'm trying not to have that happen. And I, you know, the buck stops here. So mm-hmm. I, I don't take um, many things personally, like if you try to insult me, it won't really work. Because mm-hmm. either you'll say something that's factually inaccurate, or something that I've probably thought myself, possibly and probably worse than whatever you just said. So why would, why would we argue about that? But when, you know, when there's a problem with a product or something gets lost in, in transit or, you know, any of the millions of things that can go wrong on a daily basis, I take those very personally because I'm, I feel responsible for, you know, giving people the best experience they can have. And it's just not possible to do that all the time. Um, And so, but I think that's really important. And so I'm not, we're not laissez-faire managers. We're all very much in it and committed to it and doing the best we can.
0: I like to, I find it interesting to think of like corporations, entities, and even, um, you know, a brand as a person. Uh, Uh, Well, you're
1: on it. My line is all companies rise to the level of the neuroses of their founders. (laughs) And I mean that in a positive way as well. So, uh, you know, so one of the things about working here, everybody has a enjoyably self-deprecating and mildly willing to, you know, tease other people, um, personality. There's a lot of people just, you know, joking about stuff all the time. I'm a former professional stand-up comic, you know, it's like, they don't fit in if they don't have a good sense of humor around here. And Mm -hmm. so that's very enjoyable. Um, we're very casual, but also work really hard. That's, you know, the same, not as hard as Lena or I by any stretch. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, uh, but, but yeah. The, I mean, look at some of these other companies, look at Uber, look at WeWork, look at all these things where people t- say that it's a toxic environment from the top down. Mm-hmm. I find that fascinating and, re- and unbelievable and shocking and annoying. And I mean, cause how hard is it to be a decent human being yeah. and then just do that with the people that you're, that are working with you. Mm-hmm.
0: Because at the end of the day, like uh, decency and process is kind of what it comes down to.
1: I guess. You know? I mean, it just comes down to, look, you know, we had an employee who uh, always referred to me as boss. Hey, boss. Mm-hmm. And I, after a while, I tried, I stopped trying to talk him out of it because I found it really annoying. Because one of my little neurotic things is I treat everyone like I've known them my whole life. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. It's just a psychological thing. Um, it's just easier. I can't code shift. And I don't treat people like employees. Um, oh, yeah. These are, you know, we're all partners in this. And we've set up our company. To reflect that, we have a a profit-sharing-inspired bonus plan. We have, rather than giving out options, which are a very crude tool, we have other ways that we make sure everyone knows that they're equally important. I mean, the customer service and warehouse people are as important as our product designers and me and Lena. I mean, -hmm. this is an ecosystem. It doesn't work with one of those pieces missing. And we built the company to demonstrate that that's how we see the world. And Mm -hmm. it's great and other people, they set up companies and you know they wanna be the guy who everyone bows down to. And congratulations, but boy, what a horrible way to live in my opinion. Ooh, you just froze. Oh, now you're back. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, we are good.
1: Yeah. Hold on. All
0: right, now you're good. But- okay. It's yeah, being in a company to where everyone bows down to. Right. And you don't have like some kind of shared camaraderie um, yeah. and share, shared goal. And, and it's interesting. That's why I say like, you know, company is a representation, almost like it's a person in a lot of ways, because those people who are who are participating in, in shipping and things like that, that's a representation of what that company is. That's that company's yeah. ability to be like or to be timely. Right. Yeah. And and that the only way for them to be timely at some point is, is, is how the shipping puts things out and how things get packaged and also how you manage those. Right.
1: And, you know, and again, the other thing to keep in mind, and I think I love this idea that you're talking about, because um, when if you treat a company like a nameless, faceless entity, it's just a horrible relationship The flip side is, you know, all companies, I don't care how they're structured, it's a collection of human beings and processes, mostly human beings. And so it's annoying to me, to be totally candid, when people don't recognize that there's human beings on the other end of the equation. We're all Mm -hmm. just doing the best we can, and sometimes there's things we can have control over, and sometimes there's things we don't. So lately, I had a number of people complaining that they ordered a product and it took I don't know, week and a half for it to show up. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I have nothing to do with that. We get it out the door as quickly as we can. And by the way, we had a massive product launch earlier and we were we got twice as many orders as we expected. And we just weren't prepared for that because who could be? How would you know? And then, and then the shipping ca- companies, USPS, FedEx, et cetera, they were being overwhelmed as well. Mm. And we have no control over that part. I said to someone just to make a point, I said, just so you know, FedEx comes by here like, five times a day and three of those times they're not in a FedEx truck, it's a guy in a van. <laughs> and you know, so they're having problems as well. And we're all just trying to do the best we can. And we would hope that uh, people would give us the same credit they would expect when they're doing the best they can and it's not working the way they would want. But that doesn't happen very often, which is kind of a shame.
0: Yeah. I, I think it is because, you know, being on the other side of that and having to uh, doing customer service for people who didn't get packages and, and things like that, it, it did appear very, um, what is it, One, one-sided in, in that way, in that, like, there was there's a lot of distress and it's a lot of, like, meeting the customer's need, which I think is really important. Um, but there's also some part of driving home, like, the human element. You know, and the reality yeah. of like when you when you are down and out in a way to like to not this like us versus, you know, me versus you or anything like that. It's like we're in this together. Yeah. And I find that in like human to human interactions. There's ways when someone is like person to person, just angry at me and mm-hmm. I can redirect it and remind them that I'm just trying to help them and make us all feel better together. You know, and there's like yeah. that little little place you can find in almost all these little interactions, whether you're it's a professional or personal. <laughs>
1: Well, there's one other component to that, which is, I mean, I've been selling things online since 1992. And one thing that I can tell you is that in the in the last few years, and really the last few more than, it's not like a straight line, it's really a, a increasingly sloping curve. Um, people have gotten um, more entitled and demanding and think that the louder they yell, the higher the chances they're going to get their problem solved the way they want it solved. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, you know, my experience has been that if you're, I mean, you can be frustrated and upset and you don't have to yell at someone about that. You can express that in a way that, and and look, I'm not saying I'm perfect at this. Trust me, when I get on the phone with Google about my Google wifi and it's not working properly after I've had to go through the same troubleshooting steps for hours, five times, I'm not a pleasant person to be on the phone with. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and my only hope is that they can transfer me to someone who's not just going know, through the checklist and can get me to someone who actually knows what the hell's going on. But yeah. when but I but right before this call, I got off the phone <clears throat> with um uh, a, a major US supplier who we spent $2,000 buying some things from they were supposed to be here last Friday. And now they have no idea when the stuff's going to arrive. And I'm cool. very upset about it but I know that people that I was talking with had no control over it. And I was just asking, you know, what could they do to help? And I kept saying, look, this is really a problem. You know, what can you do? And they, um, they basically, you know, I think took off about half the price. So when we wow. get this thing, we will get it for a grand. Honestly, because I wasn't a douche about it.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and that's like what we had on the back end. When I started working on the back end of a company and contacting customers, I realized, you know, how, of course, just companies, people, it's very specific to the individual, but I didn't realize how much freedom there was to um, to help a customer. You know, and if a customer depends, was really nice, company. like...
1: Yeah, it depends mm-hmm. on the company. I mean, you know, we've, we've said to people, look, this is literally is as much as we can do. And we've had to say there are a couple of times where we've had to say it's like, we, I know you want fill in the blank. You want us to give you everything for free and another million dollars on top of that. I, I just we can't do that. Um, and again, some people just, you know, have ideas about what they want that are not grounded in reality.
0: But I but I think that's like a professional thing and a, a philosophical thing for everyone that we deal with, because yeah. for us personally, because, you you know, it's like it's really important to be I find important to be uh, like kind, considerate and compassionate and trying to understand someone's point of view. But like not every some people are sharks. You know, whether it's like in a period of their life or their whole life, like my sister is kind of going through that right now, you know, and doing like fraud and things like that. Right. And and yeah, some people are are genuinely like that. So how can you at once be really inviting and opening and incrementally apply boundaries? You know, if somebody is indicating otherwise and it's like I know, and yeah.
1: I mean, you, you just answered the question for yourself, really. I mean, that's exactly what it is. Some, you know, The first person you've got to be kind to is you. And so sometimes, you know, the kindest thing you can do is say to someone, no, we're done. Mm-hmm. Um, someone, a couple of people that I've talked to recently told me that one of the kindest things you can do is fire an employee who isn't doing their job because they're not, clearly they're not happy where, where they are, even if they are, they're not gonna be able to remain happy because you're gonna be demanding more of them. And it's a kind thing to just cut it off quickly and give them the opportunity to do something that you know will be a better fit. It's better for everybody. This is a lesson that Lane and I have, it's hard, a hard one lesson for us because we just wanna keep giving people a chance to step up. And some people just don't, and some people do things. We've had people who tried to tear our company apart. And that was a fascinating thing. Where it's like, man, Gosh. we're done. Um, so it's a—it's mm-hmm. not unkind to. Here, here's a great way of putting it. I was going to say it's not unkind to stop people from hurting you, or as a friend of mine says, um, you're not allowed to complain that the Slurpee is warm if you're robbing the Seven <laughs>
0: Eleven. That's funny. <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah, I like that a lot too. <laughs> and uh, you know, historically, um, does that contradict uh, the common like approach to customer service? Because I've just remember like that whole customer is always right um kind of mentality and sometimes i i feel like that loses the nuance i I, th-
1: I think that was never true i think no one ever really believed that i think that was just a line that someone came up with um mm-hmm. the the you know the the truth is you want to be helpful as much as you can given the bounds of what's possible and what you are allowed to do look the number of times i've been on the phone to some customer service person they go well i can't do that and i go you can't or you won't they say i can't I go, okay, can you put me on with someone who can? Mm -hmm. And sometimes I have to ask like five or 10 times, and then invariably they put me on with someone who right away takes care of it. So Mm -hmm. um, again, I haven't gotten my way, quote, whatever that is, every time. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not getting the stuff that I ordered for a couple grand any faster than it's gonna show up. Um, You know, what are you gonna do? But I got through to someone who, when I said, you know, what can you do? He said, let me make a price adjustment. Mm -hmm. and made this massive price adjustment so we're actually dealing with that with a couple things we bought a house and we had to do some renovating we got a couple things that were very expensive things that came damaged and -hmm. it's like you know and they said well why don't you just keep it it's like oh uh uh, okay
0: that's nice
1: it was a pain but you know it was better than Mm -hmm. the alternative
0: yeah exactly has it has it come have those things and helped inform you in your personal relationships um it's kind of the other way
1: around i mean everything that i'm doing in business has evolved because of whatever i've done in my personal relationships i mean my relationship what allowed my relationship with Lena, my wife to happen at all is uh this thing of for example becoming uninsultable (laughs) So, (laughs) so when we um when we which is not about being hard it's about Uh, recognizing that if someone has a complaint, again, it's either factually accurate or not. If it is, why would I argue? Um, If it's not, why would I argue? And often it's something I mean, when when, before we were a couple, uh, Lena was visiting and staying at my place. We we had a mutual friend she was coming to stay with. But then that friend was not around. So she ended up crashing at my place. Um, We were friends at that time. That's it. And at some point during the weekend, she got really mad at me. And I said, Look, I don't know what's going on. Why don't you just fill in the blanks, Stephen, you are a and give me the complaints. And I don't remember most of them. In fact, I only remember one. She said uh, in this long list, she said, uh, you think you're spiritually superior to me? And I said, Oh, my God, you're totally right. No, no, not that I am, but that I think that. And I think that because I've done all these meditation courses and I've taught all these things and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is, for all I know, you're the Buddha and I'm just too stupid to recognize it. So you're correct that I I have that thought. And my apologies for not having recognized that that may not be true and probably isn't. In fact, I'm sure it isn't because I don't even know what spiritually whatever means. But um, anyway, she's giving me this list of things, you know, one after another after another. And, and with each one, I'm getting like happier and happier, which mm-hmm. got her very confused until she finally said, what's going on for you? And I said, I didn't know you thought about me this much. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so, but literally everything she said, you know, I had no argument with, um, and that's, so that's what allowed our relationship to start in many ways. And that's the way I, I, kind of treat business things. If someone's got a complaint, you know, I want to hear it because I want it to get resolved. And why protect, you know, one of the we're protective over things that we don't seemingly like about ourselves, and the real problem is when we're not good at hiding it and it comes out and other people notice, we feel that we failed twice. We couldn't get rid of it and other people saw it. And I have no problem being transparent that way. If someone says to me, you know, you're arrogant, which comes up not infrequently. Sometimes um, I go, yeah, you should hear what goes on in my head that I don't say it's Mm -hmm. a horrible habit. And I my apologies if it comes out in some way that's uh, not productive, um, because that's not my intention. And if you've got any suggestions for how we can do this differently, I'm all ears because I'm just trying to get to a um, final something that works for all of us. And so if that's not happening, you know, what do we need to do?
0: That, that's, that's beautiful. What do you, you think happened? The chicken or the egg? Did you, um, or happened first, the chicken or the egg? Did you, did you have this like separation from, from your, your quirks and your neuroses mm-hmm. and your strengths and stuff before you go into comedy? Or did you
1: like find some perspective because of comedy or some experience? Oh, no, I I started doing comedy when I was a child. So, no, I did not have any of this. Um, What happens with comedy, though, is interesting because when you first start doing comedy, it's not uncommon that you'll do a joke and the audience doesn't get it. And comics will go like and just make a motion. You know, the joke went over their head and it's usually the opposite. Usually the joke hit them right in the forehead and it just wasn't funny. And it takes years to learn the difference between when it's them and when it's you. Mm -hmm. And it takes years to learn that sometimes it's just the way it is. It didn't work either because it's them or it's because it's you. And then you, you know, you learn that it doesn't kill you. You learn that it's okay. Sometimes you go up deliberately intending to fail because you just don't know if this new bit's going to work. And so Mm -hmm. let's just try it. And so it does give you a, I'll tell you the superpower that doing comedy gives you. You just don't care walking in what's going to happen because you feel a certain kind of not arrogant level of confidence, a certain um, surety that you'll be able to handle it. Whatever happens, if it goes well, you know, if something not, people say, I'm going to ask you some hard hitting questions. I go, I guarantee you aren't. you're going to ask me questions i'm going to answer the questions you might think they're hard-hitting but i have nothing to protect other than things i'm not legally allowed to say Mm -hmm. um, because we you know have sec reporting requirements but um you know what could you possibly ask me that's that i would react badly to because it's just a question Mm -hmm. so you know no big deal no harm no foul so no it evolved um over time and and some of it comes from maturity some of it comes from just introspection and you know kind of looking at um patterns that one can find in one's life and how thinking works and you know things stuff
0: that's that's cool because you know i've had um i've had a lot of like delusional um beliefs and, and thoughts oh me like me. uh one is if i'm gonna drop in at the skate park off of a yeah. quarter pipe that i'm gonna break my like bones and I yeah. have to go to the the hospital like I just have bad imagery and, uh, you know, I'm 26 now and I'm trying to drop in and I have these teenagers at the skate park who are teaching me. And My son's nine. And he's like dropping in and stuff. And I realized that um, that how of how much delusional fears I had because I could get hurt. But I'm not going to get hurt to that extent, dropping in off of like a, you know, three foot (laughs) quarter pipe. And um, the reality is, is like I I physically can do it because if I don't feel comfortable doing that, I can scale it. I can scale it to something that is the most like tolerable amount of fear and then play with that.
1: Well, you're on to something that I love, which is that confidence is you can't fake it. And so, you know, you may discover that you still have these thoughts that are not in sync with reality. But the first thing you might discover is who gives a shit. You can mm-hmm. still you can still keep going, no matter really full. And then you might discover at some point you're not having them as often or at all. Or sometimes you might discover there's some truth that you need to pay attention to. So there's all of that in there. But you know, um, when people talk about confidence, I, I kind of crack up because. I know as a former professional performer, I know so many people top of their game who the moment before they walk out on stage and until they get the first laugh, sing the first note, play the first whatever, they're confident that it won't work. They're terrified. Ooh. They're panicked. It's just that's just the way their brain works. And they've learned that, you know, well, that doesn't mean you can't take the next step and do the next thing. It's just mm-hmm. that that's what happens. And there's a, um, I used to do uh, Zen archery. And the whole idea with Zen archery is that there is this interesting paradox between aiming for a target and not being focused on hitting the target. And mm-hmm. the way you the way you draw the bow and the way you hold the string and the way you hold the bow, you're right on the edge of out of control. You want to be just right on the edge of not really controlling this thing at all which is somewhat terrifying when you have this weapon in your hands and the thing with zen archery is that you during the course of the practice you get like four thoughts over and over and over things like striving and wanting to look good fear um anger sometimes expectation you get like four thoughts Mm -hmm. and after a few years of just getting the same four thoughts over and over and over you just bore yourself to death and then when they come up they just have no weight because you've just heard it so many times and it's so irrelevant to just doing the next thing Mm -hmm. you just don't care and um that's a entertaining place to be
0: I I love that because that's perhaps where my curiosity has taken me in many things from comedy to rock climbing to jujitsu. And it's like all of these things that I'm very afraid of in very different ways. I don't like heights, I'm afraid of people. And going going and, and doing in doing these things, um, I realize it produces um, very consistent kinds of thinking, these individual experiences. Totally. Do you remember the first time you got choked down? Yeah.
1: What was that like?
0: I thought I was first, I was really scared because um, I thought I was going to get hurt. And then I was like, wait, am I doing this right? (laughs) Am I supposed to tap now? And then I'm like, I can't breathe, though. (laughs) I'm like, maybe I should. No, don't. Yeah, do it. And then I tapped. And I realized that, like, you know, at first I was really nervous and I'd look around um, and nobody noticed the thing. And it was just on to the next round. I'm
1: like, huh. <laughs> and so and what's it like now how's that evolved
0: um when when i'm feeling the experience i remind myself to breathe and it's not always um it's not always it's not always easy sometimes i'm afraid and i feel you know uh like i have a. When someone's on top of me, I feel like mm-hmm. suffoc, not suffocated, but like I don't have enough room, and um, like I'm, a, yeah, I guess suffocated. And those kinds of thoughts will come back up, and I feel my panic rise. Mm-hmm. But I go back to breathing again.
1: It becomes the 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 panic, which makes sense. You could be choked out, mm-hmm. you know. It makes sense, but it's like it's become a cue for a different kind of response, a different kind of experience of the. Same phenomenon, And that's the thing that's so interesting. And that's where real confidence comes from is not not having the feeling. It's just that it doesn't mean the same thing anymore. And you're, you relate to it very differently than people who haven't been there.
0: That, that's interesting. I was going over the summer trying to teach my son how to swim and him and his brother were afraid to jump off of the dock with their life jackets. So what Mm -hmm. we did was we went into this water that was knee high and we jumped into it to where it was chest high. And literally within three hours they were jumping off of the dock um with life jackets and then they were jumping off of the dock with like supervision um without life jackets and and doggy paddling over and (laughs) at first they were like oh you shouldn't be afraid you should trust the life jacket they hadn't been in life jackets for a year and they and it's like that's to me is a reasonable thing in terms of confidence because they have not made this experience known they don't know what floating in a jacket feels like, or, or any of that. And I think that's a very healthy reflection of a person, you know,
1: I agree here. Well, here's a funny version of that as applied to business. The one of the number one predictors of a business that could fail is that the founder was successful in the previous business, because it's often the case that the the first business the founder had some idea and like ooh this feels like a thing and then it becomes a thing and then they get out of that first business and then they have another idea that feels the same way as that first one but it's not a good idea and they're confident quote unquote that it was because of them that the first thing happened. That idea felt like this, this idea feels the same. It must be a good idea and away they go. And it's not the case. The universe, you know, the, the, the river has moved on. You're stepping in different water. The tide has changed. You have changed, the world has changed. And so it's just a very common thing. We are very attentive when we hire people to um, uh, hope, see if we can suss out in advance of hiring them, whether or not they're gonna try and recreate what they did in the past or learn something very new while they're here. Because we're not doing it the way it's normally been done. And if they try to reinvent a previous wheel, then that's going to most likely be
0: problematic. Do do you see limitation in trying to chase uh, an idea ideology or trying to chase a romantic view of something and getting caught up in that concept.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, let's just go for the um romantic ideal 101. I'll be happy in this imagined future. You know, we 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 think that there's something that if we get to, then we will be somehow magically differently happy. And um That one is problematic. So there's a a great book about this. Actually, it's a researcher from Harvard named Daniel Gilbert. His book is called Stumbling on Happiness. And that's the basic premise that we spend most of our time trying to figure out what it's going to take to make us happy in the future. We are horrible at remembering how bad we are at that. We're even worse at, rem- we're, we're, oh, actually, wait, we're horrible at coming up with the idea of, you know, the thing that will actually make us happy. We're even har- more horrible at remembering that it doesn't really work. And then we think we're special. And that part's the fun one, because if we found a million people who got the thing that we thought we would need to be happy and found out that they're no happier as a result of getting it, we'd still think, yeah, but if I got it, I know all those people who won the lottery. I know that two years after winning the lottery, they're no happier than they were before. But if I won the lottery and so that believing in the imagined future that will create happiness, that's uh, that's the most pervasive one. And um, when you can, knock that one out. You don't knock it out. Again, when you Zen archer yourself, when you bore yourself to death with that one by just recalling and observing that that's just not the way it works. Then when that thought comes up, it's not a big deal. You just go, oh, yeah, there's that thing. We're trying to convince me to try and get that thing. Cause then I'm going to be satisfied and, you know, all right, let's just keep going anyway, for other reasons.
0: Would it be fair to um, draw a correlation between like there's an observed reality and there is an actual reality and you work to like to to sync those up, you know, not to replace one with the other, but to connect them and to find harmony.
1: Um, not sure. What do you mean by I'm not sure what you mean, because all I can think of is
0: there's the reality reality. Well, you have a thing of the way that you think things work, right? Um, and yeah. You have dreams of what oh, yeah. you what you want to do and problems you want to solve. But you yeah. go out into reality and test them and see if that actually is the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. No, that uh, I, I, if it were only the case that people would go test them to see if it's true with an with a genuinely scientifically open mind, like an investigative mind, instead of what we are actually wired to do which was prove that what we believe is true and if we find any contradicting evidence we will use that to further believe what we already believed because that's that's the way we that's what our brains evolved to do our brains evolved to figure out things like is that thing that's making the grass move weird is that food for me or am i food for it mm-hmm. and we need to make a very fast decision because if we had to make that same decision. Every time we see the grass moving weird, we're going to be food. And so our brains evolved to make snap, well, make fast decisions and lock into them because having to reevaluate every time would get us killed. And we continue to do that now in situations that are not, certainly not relevant for our mortality. Um, And, but we still Hold on to beliefs. I think I I have a theory. I don't know if it's true, obviously. um, But I'd love to find a good neurologist who can help me with this. I think that the way our brain encodes beliefs is very similar to the way our brain encodes the very sense of self, the very idea of who we are. And I think they're so closely related. That that's when you cha- that, so when you challenge someone's belief, they often act like you're trying to kill them, that you're trying to rip apart something about them, mm-hmm. instead of investigating something that they adopted as a belief. And uh, I find that v- very interesting, and of course very annoying slash perplexing when you see that someone is holding on to something like with a vice-like grip that is patently false. Mm. I, I got it. Here's a, here's a quick personal story about that. Mm-hmm. I dated a woman who was convinced that she was damaged goods. In fact, um, one of my favorite relationship moments ever. And I hope this, uh, this story slash joke resonates for you. If you, if you get where it's coming from, we're having a a conversation in the car one day. And I said, this is weird. It sounds like you're trying to pick a fight with me. And she says, well, you know, and she's very insightful. She said, you know, this is usually the point in the relationship where the guy realizes that I'm damaged and, um, you haven't gone there yet. And I'm just trying to see if I can get you to go there. And I said, in a conversation with a real human being, your Kung Fu does not work in this village. Go back to where you came from and study for many
2: years. (laughs) 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 um,
1: But you know, she was really committed to this idea and I understood why she came to that conclusion. It just wasn't based on anything factual. And so she couldn't get me to agree with it. And that was really interesting. At one point I said to her, you know, if you want to see what's on the other side of that, you probably couldn't have picked a better guy. But if you're committed to that idea, you know, I don't think you should torture yourself. And much to my surprise, she started moving out the next day. Wow. That's worked wild. That okay. Yeah. It worked a <laughs> for okay,
0: everybody. Yeah, it did, right?
2: Seems. And. Ooh.
0: I think when you talk about our personal, our self being wrapped up into our belief system and being closely tied together, it's I find it um, it interesting because we oftentimes uh, know ourselves through narrative and story. And my God, like what through what else could we
1: possibly? Yeah, but I mean, really. it's one of it's something that i find really really fascinating when someone finds out something about their history that they didn't know like you know they were adopted or their father was um, i don't know having an affair or whatever their mother was having an affair whatever they find out something and they say things like i don't know who i am anymore it's like you're the same person you were two seconds ago Mm -hmm. you're nothing has changed you have a new story and for whatever reason you're trying to reconcile that story in some way that has nothing to do with you anyway i mean it hasn't changed anything
0: in your in your practice with with meditation and mindfulness have you have you seen um, a separation between those two or do you think they're intrinsically connected Um, between like the your sense of self and and the, the story of yourself and i i feel this in meditation that you know you have that like the the uh, subject object right and there's a yeah, sense yeah. of separation between like thoughts and and the observer and stuff. Do you find that mm-hmm. though in that narrative space and like who you are, like Steve? Um, if you
1: if you look at all of the stories that you can possibly find about who you think you are, and look for. I mean, if they seem, well, just investigate those at all, then you're, I can't imagine you would not come to realize that there's something that seems um, existent, independent of those stories. Mm -hmm. Um, But that doesn't mean the stories go away. Just means that you can there's a certain transparency to them. I mean, you know, the whole idea of, um, you know, cogito or some, I think therefore I am, um, the, aside from the fact that ironically that created this sort of dichotomy between mind and body in a way that is sort of meaningless. But, but the only thing that we n- seem to know with unshaking certainty is that we exist. Everything after that kind of up for grabs. Mm-hmm. Like here's a crazy question. Uh, here's a fun way to, to ponder that. Um, You know, you turn on your computer, and at a certain point, there it all is, okay? It was off, and now here it all is with pictures and music and history and plans for the future and to-do lists and calendars. Where's the evidence that you're not the same? Where's the evidence that when you woke up this morning, that was the first time you ever existed, and when you woke up, you were given memories, history, some idea of what a body looks like and how it's supposed to feel just, you know, that you got the entire thing in that moment. I'm not saying it's true, but it's an entertaining thing to play with because who the hell knows?
2: It's possible. Again,
1: I'm not suggesting it's real, but when you think of it that way, you can start to feel the amount of energy that we use to maintain a familiar, consistent sense of who we are despite the fact that we know many of our memories are gone mm-hmm. and that we have some that are wrong <laughs> and that we can learn new ones that we didn't know we had. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the historical con- continuity is uh, fake. I mean, it doesn't really exist mm-hmm. the way we think it does. <laughs> and yet we feel historically continuous.
0: And, Much like like music and there being a sense of meaning with the notes um, that's translated to our emotions. Right. Mm -hmm. And that actually being meaningless because it's a but only given meaning by our (laughs) attribution to it. Right. Because if you were to play that music, like the configuration of the notes isn't just universally sad, but that is universally within the pattern of of our of us as a people yeah yeah i'm
1: thinking about um i went to a japanese music concert and uh with a lot of japanese people and they had a very different relationship to the music than americans
0: so did you know that the color i think the color yellow isn't um isn't a color in in different languages they describe it as shiny um
1: blue didn't exist in language until you know like a couple like a thousand two thousand years ago something like that that people used to describe the color of this of the ocean and the sky as being dark and black
2: whoa
0: it's did you i was listening to something based off of uh like physics And it was a conversation on where we perceive color. Mm. And if we like the color of your shirt is the color of your shirt. You know, am I seeing it on my screen Mm. Um, or where else am I seeing it? And the reality that it's been proven that we see it in our eye and that blue doesn't actually exist. It's we translate the frequency
1: it well i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna dive in it's not that it doesn't exist it's where you're going next is the real thing Mm. there is a frequency an electromagnetic frequency that stimulates certain receptors in your retina that are then transmitted to the back of your brain where your brain processes that and then we then we go hey color and for most times you know, people agree that there's some distinguishing features between one color and another. Some people don't see those distinctions if they have color blindness, et cetera, um, or some other uh, um, problem with their ocular cortex. But um, so I, I, this is often misinterpreted as things like there's no there, there, there's no mm-hmm. objective reality, um, things like that. But it's simply that You know, we're doing the best we can with what we've got. We have certain receptors that respond in certain ways to certain things relatively consistently. Um, Some of it's culturally dependent. Some of it's things that you learn. But suffice it to say, um, it's impossible to know what, quote, reality... Because You would need an infinite number of sensing devices that are all kind of put themselves together in some way that we all agree to. We don't have that. You know, look, butterflies see ultraviolet. We don't see ultraviolet. Yeah. So that doesn't mean ultraviolet doesn't exist. It means that we don't have the receptors to see it. So, you know, it's some of these things that get easily um, confused or conflated. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more important thing is who gives a shit? Yeah. You know, it's, it's a blue
0: shirt. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting um, in that we have all of these senses, and mm-hmm. through your life, you can have experiences to investigate what is out there.
1: It's very cool, and. and- out there, in here, I mean, you know, investigating anything can be very, very interesting. Uh, sorry, you, you reminded me of um, a story about this that I loved. Um, so way back when I, I did Aikido for a number of years and it was in, I was living in New York. It was a blistering cold winter day. We left the dojo. We're walking out with the teacher and a couple of the other students and uh, people are commenting on how cold it is. And I said, sometimes I just like to pay attention to the sensations because if I really do that without the extra story, it just doesn't feel cold anymore. And there's a long pause and the teacher goes, yeah, I did that Zen shit for 40 years. It's fucking freezing out here. (laughs) 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 So, you know, there's investors also... Uh, like a certain simplicity, there's a line in Zen, which is before Zen mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. But then during Zen mountains are not mountains and rivers are not mi- rivers. But then after Zen mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. And people like to mythologize that. And it's like, Oh, but you know, with a little special magic twinge tinge at the end, it's like, no, no, no. What that teaching is saying is like, no, no, everything as it is without your extra stuff. That's it. That's amazing enough. You don't need to add anything to it. And uh, they go, uh, but you know, they're saying no, no. It's saying that the the urge to try to make it more than it is is the only problem. When you're just okay with that, that's the way it is, then it's you know pretty pretty amazing.
0: Has that informed you as an entrepreneur?
1: Um, it informs me in that I don't. Um, again, I don't harbor the illusion that some large amount of money or some building the company to a certain point is going to make me intrinsically happier. Um, There's certain things where undeniably, you know, I, I, the converse of that is anyone who says money can't buy happiness has never driven my car. (laughs) And it's a, it's not an expensive car. It's a Subaru BRZ with a supercharger in it. Super, super fun. Yeah. Tremendous fun. Had to spend money to get it. Um, And I don't have the illusion that um, becoming a multi-billion dollar company is, um, you know, some magical thing either. So because of that, I, there's certain things that stress me out in the immediate time, some fire that just started that we got to put out that I wasn't in the mood to deal with. You know, my brain CPU cycles are maxed out. Now I got to deal with another thing, but I don't, someone asked me a while, um, you know, what do you do to de-stress? And I said, I, I don't know what you're referring to. Um, that's uh, so I don't know. I don't know why that is, but I mean, some of it is that I'm just not um, it's okay when mountains are not mountains and rivers aren't rivers. It's not a big deal. They'll become Mm -hmm. mountains. They'll become rivers and mountains again at some point. I don't need to do anything to,
0: you know, make it magic. You talk about like that, you know, the curiosity and making like the the cold and stuff like that. And reality Mm -hmm. is it's just fucking cold sometimes. Um, (laughs) But a, a little bit of that, um, do you find a little bit of that helpful? A little bit of, uh, of like experiencing, you know, uh, discomfort and in practicing like some degree of separation because,
1: you uh, know, I, no, find I that- no, no, need, no need to separate it. I mean, uh-huh. literally, sometimes shit sucks. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that's worse than that is thinking that it shouldn't suck in that moment. Like if you add the derivative layer of your opinion about whether it should or shouldn't suck, that's going to cause you more discomfort, in my experience, than the thing itself. And so, look, here's my pattern. Something happens unexpectedly. um, I will, you know, scream and bitch and moan for as long as it takes from screaming and bitching and moaning. Um, My wife used to say when we'd hire new employees you may see him running down this hall screaming because you know the internet went out right in the middle of something or whatever it is um Mm. but i've never screamed at someone i've never called them a something um and it doesn't last that long and then as soon as that settles down because you know my line is you can't be smart when you're stupid so when you're shocked you know it turns off the thinking part of your brain and you're in fight or flight mode you can't just magically will yourself out of that um it will sometimes it, it will pass faster than others sometimes like you were saying about getting choked out you know you, you eventually reframe the physical experience and it reminds you to do something different that just mm-hmm. happens over time it's like doing comedy you know you have a bad set it doesn't affect you the same way over time so when my brain calms down enough then i just go into problem-solving mode and um, happily of late you know the number of things that send me running from the room screaming has just gotten smaller and smaller uh, and although the the number of things that could send me from running from news screaming get more and more profound as the company gets bigger. So uh, there's an interesting paradox.
0: Do, do you would you um, in your experience talking to other people? Do you think that paradox is just what it's like to get better at something or to oh, improve? That's an interesting question.
1: I don't know, because the premise of your question was when you talk to people. Um, uh, <laughs> <and> so, <laughs> this is, I mean, I'm loving having this conversation. It's one of my favorite kinds of conversations. I just don't have it very often. And I certainly don't. I mean, there are um, there are a handful of entrepreneurs that I speak with on a semi regular basis who are at similar places to where we are but we're in, but we're so different personally that there's not the same kind of overlap about experience. So, um, so I don't know. It's a good question. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: if you were to talk to somebody who's raising a child or someone, a child themselves, and they were looking to prepare themselves, um, to do the hard work to in their passion you know to be um not successful but to be to be useful and productive um what kind of advice would you give them uh, for discovering how they can be useful and productive you know i uh once again
1: will uh say i have no idea (laughs) Um, i don't know you know it's it's like what so you have two kids who decide to take karate, and one of them just like gets into it and is practicing ten hours a day and watching nothing but Jackie Chan films and Bruce Lee films, and the other, you know, it's kind of into it, and you can't force the second one to become the first one. It's like why is it that the first one just has that thing that that interest that want makes them want to pursue it with that kind of determination? Got me, man. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I I don't know how these things. I, Oh, this is going to sound really weird. My mom has Alzheimer's and as her mind was disappearing, the parts that were left were the parts that she and I have the most in common. It's really interesting. So, you know, she couldn't have a conversation, but when you would say something, she'd try to come back with a joke. That's what I do. Wow. <laughs> Whoa. It wasn't and, you know, granted, I got better at it from doing comedy for a living, but that was built into the equation and I never really realized it. And I and when that was like the only thing left to a certain extent, it was really interesting. So I am in many ways, if my mom is a 10, I'm like an 11 or 12 on some of these things. And that was really fascinating to see. So, you know, but got got me, I mean. Um, I think that because uh, I'm, I'm going to give a slightly different answer. I don't know that it's important. And what I mean by that is if you have a mindless, thankless job that pays you enough money to support your family in a way that allows your children to grow and your, you to you to know, have a decent life. Why would I tell you to dump that in exchange for a quote, pursuing your passion that sounds like a fine life. I've never had a paid vacation. I've never had benefits. I've never had uh, I've never been able to go home at five o'clock and not think about work until nine the next morning. I've never had a weekend
0: <laughs> Steve that but that that's like something that I was trying to figure out my whole life, man, cause I would be working in the restaurant industry and I'd clock watch and I'd work in the hospital industry and I'd clock watch and it's like I would be in the menting place and it's like. Here's, you know, here's clear directions on how to do your job. Just do that in this time frame. And for me. But basically working a job where it's like very clear instructions and pretty much the same thing day in and day out. And I have peers that really liked it and they move up through the thing. But I felt really disconnected from them. And I'd go into like conventional college, you know, setting and I'd have difficulty thriving in comparison to other peers. But when I was doing things either um, on my own or it was like some self-learning, you know, in this context, I would really thrive. And I realized that you know, I just wasn't in the right context for who I was. And I found like minded people who exposed me to those and gave me a sense of confidence like, oh, no, if this is where you're willing to place this hard work, we've been successful in this way. And I realized that success wasn't this like fixed metric. And I had to find that curiosity to find what successful was to me and to the people around me. Because if I'm like, hey, you guys, I want to like I want to dance with, you know, a big party hat on and a bikini down the street. And if no one's going to pay me that, like, that's not, that's probably not going to be something that I'm professionally going to do. You know? Well,
1: you know, there's a, there's a book that came out way back when called do what you love and the money will follow. And people interpret, they didn't even read the book. They just read the title and went, Oh, I got to do what I love. And then money will follow. The book actually says, you know, that would be great if you can do that. But by the way, when you talk to people who are doing what they love, they often bitch and moan about it just as much as the next guy. And sometimes it's, you know, do what you love so that you can say. You know, separate from your work and then do your job. So you have the money to support the thing that you love. And that message didn't make it through to people. Uh, and, uh, uh, but I mean, the simple thing is there's not one way to do it. And, um, and there's no shortcut to figuring out your way. Um, and you know, you're a young human being. Um, and there's some things that it took me till I was in my thirties, even my forties till I realized, look, I didn't realize I was a sprinter. Till I was 45, it really hit me. It's like, oh, I was never a runner. I, I tried that running thing. I'm not wired for that. And then it hit me. I was always the fastest kid in school up to 200 meters. It's like, oh. I'm a sprinter. Now it's all clear to me. I mean, I don't know why it took so long, but um, but you know, but every, but part of it, you're right. There are social pressures to try to you know do it one way or the other. But luckily, we tend to, human beings. When we get frustrated enough, we tend to or backed into a corner, we tend to try to make a change. And sometimes if we're lucky. We find a way to do things um, that work better for us. And sometimes people would rather just you know bitch and moan and complain that it should be different. But that's just the way they are. That yeah. They just like And moan and say it should be different.
0: (laughs) That's where I like to just lock down and and try to do actionable change and talk about my own self and don't try to project that onto other people, man. Yeah. I appreciate this, Stephen. Where can people find out more about you?
1: Oh, my gosh. (laughs) After all this, Uh, well, not about me, but if you want to find out more about Zero Shoes, at least, uh, Zero Shoes, X E R O -O 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 Shoes.com. Normally, I'm wearing a Zero Shoes t shirt, but our washing machine broke last week and I'm out. And then on social media, at Zero Shoes or slash Zero Shoes, wherever you happen to at or slash.
0: Sweet. Thank you so much, Stephen. I appreciate your time. Total pleasure, man. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. It was a real joy to be able to talk with Sashin and learn about his experience as an entrepreneur. I don't I haven't had a lot of opportunities to talk with entrepreneurs before, but entrepreneurship is something that I'm deeply fascinated in because business is a big part of our lives i mean and i used to be this guy who like really hated business and and all that kind of thing and i thought that like oh, i just didn't really understand you know the economy very well still don't but i'm getting a better grasp on it um and what it means to start a business and to create things the purpose behind that and i think it's like it's really beautiful um perhaps i romanticize it a lot but there are these things out there that that really mean something to you right um let me think of things that don't mean things that don't mean too much to you there is uh, like the shape of a picture frame right the kind of materials that go into the picture frame um I don't know, like sometimes even the color of your walls, right? There's these things that you see and they they have some effect on you, but like, you know, the color of your car is another example, but the feeling of your steering wheel in your hands, um, having seat warmers, the way that somebody makes a bike, the kind of geometry that they put into it, how they express their creativity with their machining and, um, the choices that they make and they don't make when somebody designs a shoe what kind of specifications they put in a shoe like zero shoes is um a wide toe box but there's like ultra is a wide toe box for instance and um there's other minimalist shoes out there and just because you have a wide toe box that doesn't mean that you're a minimalist shoe the soles of their shoe are are very thin so that you can they try to preserve ground feel and they were more reliance on your foot with less support from the material and that makes it a, a different kind of shoe that solves a problem or something that wasn't available um, in its own unique way. We, we all have this Experience In our life Because you get to A kid's book My son Said an interesting thing He was reading a kid's book And he's trying to learn How to draw Things in the world More and more And he recognizes In this kid's book That he sees that These are people That were drawn But They're not drawn Very accurately They're kind of drawn Silly and and have a lot of character to them. He'd even say that it's below his skill level to draw that that kind of character or draw a person that way. But you have to take into consideration the person's style and how they developed it over time. They chose to develop a style that was, or the ability to reflect that style, that was silly and that gave you like triggered you emotionally in different ways rather than providing a factual representation of what a person is there's people out there who spend their whole lives making something not as perfect as possible but as clear as possible expressing their um, opinions what they like And talking to Steven was a professional representation of that in a lot of ways, because having shoes that would rely on his feet and um, had a wide toe box, but allowed him like, you know, protection that he wanted. That was important to him. It wasn't just a means to an end. At least that's what I got from this conversation. And I want to spend my life doing that kind of work whatever it is in, as long as it's relevant and and I believe in the consequences of that work. Not that I believe I'll be successful or, or greatly rewarded, that I really want to bring that thing into this world or even contribute to shaping what it is. And that lights a fire in me and that makes gives work um, in my time a renewed sense of meaning. Like, know i even have an acquaintance who builds skis and the way that he builds skis is so uniquely him right uh every time you go and ride the skis it it affects the feeling of skiing if you were to take that and compare it to another person's skis it's not the same you literally get to embody somebody's perspective through experience and how it influences that I'll quit my rambling and I want you guys to, if it's, if you're listening to this when it's dropped, enjoy your fall and the ensuing winter. I really hope that you found some peace and love within your life. I understand that times are tumultuous and challenging, but chaos is an opportunity to establish new order. And chaos is part of life. I just hope that you suffer the least amount and you don't experience maximal pain. I love you. I really do. Because in some ways, we're alike. And in the ways we're different, God, makes it so interesting, doesn't it? I'm going to play you out with a song by Oliver Hart called Step by Step, thanks to Rhyme Sayers Entertainment. I still haven't gotten any copyright pulls, but just keep on trucking. I really believe in being able to share people's music, and I hope you guys enjoy this song. You can check out more by Idea at rhyme.sayers.com. Dot .com or on YouTube as ID and Abilities enjoy
2: 1999, the day of my death My back was on the cold concrete as I took my last breath Saw my body laying on the ground as my soul hovered above it Damn idea, he was a good looking cat But anyway, another day, 18 years of age Stepping to heaven's gates anxious to see what God's got to say Maybe he'll give me a gift for always saying my prayer But he might send me downstairs for last year's love affair Well, who cares? right now it's all a mystery. I mean, I find out when I get there. Until then, I can't let it get to me. I'm keeping my cool Besides, Everybody dies. I'll just follow the white light like they do in the movies. It seems like I was went by and I'm still traveling right towards the brightness. Now this ain't heaven or hell. This realm is lifeless and I hate to say it, but this wild goose chase had me bored. No directions, no clues, and no idea what I was in for. But then forward I kept noting, And in a quick flash the light split directly in and created a forked path, representing each side as an angel. Now what's the task I have to untangle to meet the big man in charge? I asked, and the one to the right of me said, one of us always lies and one always tells the truth. Ask the right one the right question, and he'll direct you to heaven. But if you ask the wrong one, son, farewell, you're going straight to well y'all get the picture. And the one on my left told me not to listen to his fits. He said it ain't that complicated to find out where God lives. He told me to follow his path and tell God he said hi. Then the one on my right jumped in and told me not to believe his lies. And I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. I didn't care much for life but I'd have tried to stay alive forever if I knew this is what death was like. I was never good at problem solving especially in emergencies. I get a tad bit nervous when concerned with burning for eternity. But anyways, I asked him which went live and they pointed at each other and thinking I had it I asked him the name of my mother one said he don't know the other said he know but he can't tell me god damn this is gonna be hard and so I asked like thirty questions and I still wasn't sure then being me I got pissed and gave them prints a few good words frustrated with it all I turned my back to the angels and when I walked away to my surprise I found myself in heaven you know what I'm saying Turned around from the whole situation Rejecting everything that was going on That's how I walk into heaven I walked away Walked away walks heaven Walked away Walked away, away walk Walked away, walk away, walk away, walk away, walk away.